as Buddhist monks, even though we've left the home life, our family life. We are not without support and warmth in our lives. We're not without friendship either. As we enter the Sangha, we get the support of the Sangha, both in the monastery we're in at any one time, as well as the wider Sangha. This is something very useful for us, particularly in the beginning of practice, because the support we get from more senior members of the Sangha in terms of advice, kindness, sometimes even material support, helping us to sew robes and look after our requisites and so on. All of this is very helpful because we are new to the practice and we need to learn many things and it's an immediate resource for us that we have this source of guidance and instruction with us and then the kindness and the qualities of the Kalyanamitta they're with us every day as we live in the Sangha. In Thailand they talk about the teacher as being the poor mere Kuba Ajahn. It's like they refer to the teacher like your mother and father <coughs> all rolled into one. Or we also refer to the Buddha like a father. And we're like the children, the offspring of the Buddha, the Sakya Buddha, when we come into the robes. <coughs> so sometimes people assume that Buddhist monks lead a kind of lonely, friendless life in seclusion. <clears throat> and it may be true that we have periods of seclusion, but I think most people would agree as a Buddhist monk you have plenty of friends, other monks and also lay practitioners as well. One of the things the Buddha, in his role as the father, leader of the Sangha, did was to remind the monks frequently of the dangers to their life as monks. The life of a monk is not always easy. We have to deal both with pressure from outside, from non-Buddhists and just the world society as a whole, <coughs> which is perhaps going in a different direction than the spiritual life. It's going in 
the way of craving and attachment. Then also we have the danger from inside our own hearts and minds, from our own kilesa, the condition us. <coughs> and stir our minds up. So the Buddha, as a concerned father, would give instruction, pointing out, reminding the monks what the dangers are and what to do about them. <coughs> so he would remind the monks about the danger to our celibate practice, so obviously the danger of sexual attraction, sexual desire. <coughs> the danger of wealth. As monks we live um, practicing moderation, contentment, fewness of wishes. So again, it's going against the stream of the world. It's Society and our culture encourages material accumulation and praises that. The Buddha praised living in simplicity with few wishes. He pointed out the danger of our more aggressive hand, uh, tendencies and habits that can lead us to hurt or harm others. And the Buddha was constantly rousing the monks to practice, put forth energy, be aware of the dangers, cultivate the path. He would remind the monks to develop certain perceptions frequently as a basis for the arising of wisdom and dispassion. Right, the perception of the unattractiveness of the body to help deal with sexual desire and infatuation with uh, the human body. So the perception of death, the perception of impermanence, perception of the foulness of food, perception of stress, suffering, in the conditioned nature of our existence, and the perception of not-self, you might say emptiness. And these are perceptions to generate and uh, develop regularly. It's an antidote to the stream of worldly thinking that we may be more used to. So the Buddha pointed out when you practice mindfulness directed to the body brings forth a sense of urgency in the practice. Makes you heedful. particularly when we contemplate the body 
We have to be aware of the challenges it brings with it because our former conditioning tends to be more towards sensuality, sensual indulgence. <clears throat> it's very much going against the stream of the world to practice the first foundation of mindfulness, direct attention to the body, <clears throat> contemplate its impermanence and unattractiveness. We're not used to that. So it's a practice we have to consider carefully and bring up supportive conditions in our mind for developing that practice so that we don't go astray or <clears throat> have an unwanted reaction or result from it. One of the preparations for contemplating the Buddha, uh, the body that the Buddha gave was contemplating the drawbacks, the dangers of sense desire generally and sense objects and whatever it is that our mind seeks and desires, say sights, sounds, taste, smell, touch. It's always destined to only bring temporary pleasure, temporary distraction to the mind, temporary satisfaction. And the nature of sense experience is <clears throat> impermanent. You can't draw pleasure from seeing the same pleasant sights over and over again. from eating the same delicious food over and over again, and so on. Sense pleasure in its nature, it's impermanent, doesn't last. This is a very useful reflection to bring up when we come to contemplate the body, as it sets the mind in the <clears throat> right, with the right attitude, right resolve, the practice of nekama sankapa, right resolve, the renunciation, moving away from sense desire. And the more we observe how temporary it is, the pleasure we get from it, then you're preparing your mind for the deeper insight into, say, the unattractiveness of the body. In the old days in Thailand, in forest monasteries, when monks might be going off to a charnel ground, a place where people were cremated or even left out, a place where there might be corpses, <clears throat> the usual practice was to inform the teacher first, ask permission. And the teacher would check that the monk knew the way in and out of that charnel ground, literally the path, the route you take through the forest. Because there's always the danger that 
when in a situation, say, going to meditate next to a corpse, fear can overcome the mind very easily, and it can be a very overwhelming emotion. So you have to know your escape route, where you'll go if you become very afraid, unsteady, unsteady unstable in your mind. There's a very challenging practice to contemplate the body. In the old days it might be possible to go and camp next to a corpse that was degenerating out in the forest. There's a way to really contemplate what happens to the human body over time once it dies. Nowadays we have to rely on other means usually, books and the internet, pictures. Occasionally we might be able to visit a hospital to see an autopsy. Or even more ordinary ways we practice body contemplation, like seeing dead animals in the forest contemplating our own changing body, how our bodies become soiled, as we say, as we work, we get sweat, the body starts to smell. We go to the toilet and contemplate urine and feces that pass into the toilet pan. We can contemplate the food that we eat. Lumpur Cha used to encourage monks sometimes to spit out a mouthful of food into their hand and really look at it to see what happens to food once it mixes with the body. These kind of simple practices are available to us. And often the contemplation of the body begins like this, just turning attention more frequently to observing your own body or the bodies of people around you, noticing the unattractive side of life, the unattractive side of your own body, the unattractive side of others. It's a practice we get used to and it will bear fruit when we practice it frequently, regularly, because it's going against the old habit we had of always looking at the human body as attractive, looking for attraction, looking for the pleasant, promoting that in our perception and just in the way we would go about, maybe go about our business as a lay people, dressing up, and then looking at others to find the attractive side of others. Now as monks, we're addressing that imbalance in our perception, the infatuation with beauty and the superficial obsession with body, beauty, attraction. Now we're looking a bit more deeply and in the whole picture. So we begin in this simple way, reflecting in our daily life as we go through our day, 
noticing the unattractive in this body and the body of others. And then when we meditate, we can use it as a meditation object. This is the first object we're given when we become a monk. Reflection on hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin. The learning to bring up the 32 parts of the body. So we need that information first to be able to visualize each body part, to know what it looks like. That's where we need the books or other media. And then to practice turning the mind to visualize each part. That's a skill we can gain mindfully turning attention to visualize this human body in its different parts. Sometimes we do it as a contemplation when the mind has already been prepared through another meditation technique first. Maybe practice mindfulness of breathing or buddhanusati and when the mind becomes more calm and its energy gathers together we turn to contemplate the body. But sometimes we can just begin our meditation by turning to the body. Either because we feel it's an appropriate object for that moment or sometimes in response to lust or some sexual desire that's already arisen. You might call this the technique of wisdom developing samadhi, where we begin our meditation just running through the parts of the body, visualizing them, contemplating them as an exercise until the mind starts to settle down. They say it's like um, <clears throat> giving a monkey, the monkey mind, work to do. There's 32 trees in the forest, and you allow the mon monkey to run up and down each tree to use up some of its restless energy. <clears throat> we give the mind 32 parts to become familiar with, to think about those 32 parts, visualize them, know where they are in the body, their nature, the liquid parts, the solid parts. <clears throat> and you can experiment thinking about them different from different angles, the function of each body part, what's it made up of, what does it do, how it looks. It's a way of using up your intellectual energy but mindfully keeping your mind on that thing. And you're giving yourself a tool, or you might even say a weapon, a Dhamma weapon, to counteract the lust, the sexual desire that we encounter from time to time. The aim is to be as skilled in turning to the perception of the unattractive as we are of the attractive 
that we all know how to fantasize sexually or to visualize the female form that people we've known in the past or even just imaginary people. We're very good at that. It's second nature. And now we have to get good at visualizing the body from a different angle. And when we contemplate the 32 parts, one of the <clears throat> biggest obstacles is learning to see underneath the skin. And normally we're used to looking at people, both male and female, with their skin on. And the look of that person is defined by the shape the body, the skin, the facial expression, and so on. As we contemplate the body, the 32 parts, you're seeing it's a sealed bag of skin filled with unattractive things. So you practice as if stripping the skin off, looking at the different organs, the blood, the bones inside. You notice when you do this mindfully, successfully, it has a very powerful effect on the mind. It brings the mind right to the present moment, cuts through mental proliferation, different moods that may be bothering you at that time. It can be a bit shocking, which is why you need to know your limits and be observant of your state of mind certainly confronting and we can't always do it for very long but it's a skill we have to develop in improving contemplating the body <clears throat> I remember when I first or just before I first went to Thailand to become trained to become a monk I remember the very last night I was in the UK before I went to the airport the next day I was a loose end because I had nothing to do, wasn't going anywhere. So I turned the TV on, it was about 9 or 10 at night. And just by chance, there's a documentary on developments in brain surgery and the understanding of the human brain, <coughs> advances in techniques of surgery and... Uh, study of the brain and they had a warning on at the beginning of the program that there would be some graphic footage of brain surgery <clears throat> so I was just watching out of interest and they had a young boy on the operating table and they under anesthetic they had to cut open his skull they peeled all the skin back down so his complete face disappeared as they pulled the skin like a piece of cloth down and then cut away his skull so they could operate on the brain. <clears throat> There's a very confronting image and the documentary lingered on that image for quite a while as there was discussion of what was going on. So that was the last bit of TV I saw before I went away. There's no internet in those days, so TV was the, sort of the main media. 
that stuck in my mind for quite a while, <clears throat> the images of that uh, boy who I believe recovered successfully from his surgery, but just the uh, confronting nature of looking at the, the brain of a live person. Very useful. You could see how it holds your attention, the mind very aware and alert when you're looking at something like that. It's not easy, especially if you don't look at that very often, but it holds your attention, cuts through other distractions. Some people are different in their character, so some people do react strongly to body contemplation. They see a drop of blood and they faint, and there's not much they can do about that. But we have to learn to investigate. And this practice, they say, of like imagining taking the skin off, peeling the skin off a human, is very powerful for changing our view of the body and getting to see the, the full picture. In the beginning you might bring up an image and you just use your imagination, your memory, things you've seen, and just try and hold the image in your mind's eye. Keep it there. Make it clearer. See if you can stabilize your mind as you're focusing on that image. If the mind is still moving around, wanting more work to do, then you can move around the body with it. So rather than holding your attention on one particular part of the body, or you move, you sweep through, but visualizing as you go turning around from different angles, just trying to <clears throat> bring up these images until maybe one image sticks, or is easier, clearer, clearer to the mind and easier to focus on. Sometimes when the mind is peaceful, the image will pop up by itself. Other times you have to guide your own mind as you do this. If you do it regularly, then you may get more skilled at holding attention in an undistracted way with, with an image. Maybe even with your eyes open, you can turn to that image. When your eyes are closed, you can see that image. When your eyes are open, you can see that image. This is a very useful skill to develop, particularly in a situation where maybe lust arises unexpectedly. So you're in a place where there's an attractive person and your eyes at first are drawn to looking at that person. Or even if it's just your own imagination, <clears throat> lust has been stimulated by something or other and your own imagination takes over in a sexual way. And then having this ability to turn to bring up the image of the body part to really counter the mind's fascination and passion for the human body. Because obviously if you really can hold an image in your mind, it starts to affect your view, you start to develop more dispassion, 
disenchantment. Some people can even remember, say, the smell of the body. Particularly if you go to a funeral or an autopsy, maybe you're familiar with the smell of a dead body. There's many different aspects that can perhaps we can bring up as part of this contemplation. You know, imagine someone on the inside, they look attractive on the outside, or imagine peeling off the skin, reminding yourself what the inside looks like. The bones, the organs, the blood, pulling the skin down off the face. <clears throat> it's not an easy subject to think about. So we can often, at first, we can only do it for brief periods, and then the mind finds it just too difficult. But the idea is, if you practice regularly, you can you start to appreciate how helpful it is for calming the mind, cutting through lustful desire, obsession with the body, and you're bringing any image that you're developing into your own body. So you might begin on the outside <clears throat> and then you bring it in and you're comparing and seeing your own body in the same way. And then when lust does arise, you can bring that image up. Your aim is to get to the point where you can bring it up straight away to counter lust, to stop uh, lust arising, or if lust has arisen, to help you abandon it quickly. That's your aim. Because as long as sexual desire and lust can still arise, then it will always be an obstacle to samadhi and obviously insight. It's the hardest <clears throat> of the hindrances to completely go beyond. It's so overwhelming, so fascinating. It's a well-worn path that we've been used to thinking and treading throughout this life and who knows how many previous lives. So we really have to work hard to bring up its antidote and to develop that as a skill that we can turn to quickly. You find when Mindfulness directed to, to contemplation of the body is practiced well, it will bring up contentment, happiness, rapture. The mind <clears throat> becomes peaceful. From that peace, then we can contemplate further and to develop more equanimity more disenchantment. And each time we do this, we're educating the mind. The mind is learning to turn away from its infatuation with what is just the superficial view of a human body that we are used to, and seeking temporary pleasures with that. We can also practice in the same way with the ten corpse meditations, imagining a corpse in front of you. Again, perhaps based on pictures or 
previous experience. Then in meditation we bring up the vision of a corpse, somebody maybe freshly died, just still cold, and then moving through the stages of decomposition. As the body decomposes and stiffens and blood congeals, so you get blotches on the skin, you get gradually get bloating, skin starts to peel and weep and you get liquids coming out. You get maggots being forming in the the body start to eat the body and move around in the body, come out of the orifices. <clears throat> and the changes in the body as the maggots eat through the internal organs <clears throat> and the skin dries out, changes colour, goes dark, goes black. The hair drops out and the bones become more and more prominent. Eventually you might just have a few bones left. You can imagine, you know, if you took a picture, <clears throat> time-lapse pic picture at each stage of this, if you had a corpse just lying there in the forest, well, these are pictures you could focus on at different moments in the process of decomposition. Again, you're developing that skill at just holding attention on the vision of a corpse. Becoming more and more certain that this will happen to you. You bring the image back into your own body. You develop that certainty, I will die. This body that I call my own will die and it will be like this. <clears throat> I remember when Rumpo Cha passed away, <clears throat> I went to pay respects to his corpse just an hour or two after he had died. I'd spent the previous five years upetaking, helping him, assisting him amongst many other monks. So I was very used to massaging him, feeding him, even carrying him. So when he was lying still, cold, on his bed, I paid respects, I just touched him, just to, for one last time, <clears throat> and it had been, it was, it was a very powerful reflection because I was so used to his warm body, even though it was very fragile. Now it was cold, lifeless. Just that change, it was just confirming mm. all the life is gone. That's what happens to a human body. You bring that reflection back into your own body. And you become fully aware this body will also become cold, stiff, lifeless and degenerate just like anyone else's. The Buddha said, you do this regularly, a lot of the conceit of I will drop away. Because you become 
certain that this body that you identify with and use, unfortunately, we use it to serve the kilesas most of the time. Serve our greed, our lust, our anger. But you become certain that it will die. <clears throat> it will decompose, disappear from the world. So every time you're doing that mindfully, a little bit of the conceit of I disappears as well. And dispassion, disenchantment arises in its place. And there's less to seek from the world when you know it's impermanent. And sexual energy that often comes out in different ways, not just in fantasies, but sometimes in our behavior. The way we try to impress others, influence others. This starts to fade because you can see it's all doomed for hopelessness. In a sense, it's all impermanent, it won't last. It's not the source of real happiness. The contemplation of the body with mindfulness, with wisdom, brings the mind to the deathless. The body is, just dies, so that clearly is not the source of our long-lasting happiness. It's obviously a practice we have to keep developing over and over again through our bhikkhu life. You have to see the danger in sensuality, sensual desire, sexual desire. The Buddha said we have to learn to shrink away from sensual desire, like when you have a bird's feather and you throw it in a fire, <clears throat> it will immediately coil up, shrivel up, shrink away from the fire. So it's like that. You have to get used to just contemplating the impermanence, the suffering, the danger of sensual attachment. So it becomes intuitive that the mind just shrinks away from say, wanting to fantasize sexually or to promote any kind of behavior that might increase our sensual attachment, sensual desire. This is why we have to learn to practice body contemplation regularly, frequently. But we balance it with the other recollections, particularly development of the Brahma-viharas, kindness, compassion. Even that, you see the danger. If you're too kind to lay people and you're not skilled enough, yet kindness can easily turn into attachment desire, sexual desire. So you have to know the danger even of practicing loving-kindness, compassion, until our mind is more stable, more firm, and our wisdom is established. If you wish to really progress in your practice of Dhamma Vinaya and stay a bhikkhu a long time, you have to make the contemplation of the body very much part of foundation in your practice, something you turn to every day, regularly, till it becomes normal for you to see the body in this way. It's unattractive, impermanent, it's suffering. See that in yourself, see that in the bodies of others. So gradually you're removing doubts, in your mind is experiencing more peace from 
from the Dhamma, from truth, from wisdom, rather than following the passions or hoping to follow the passions. So we have a, a night of meditation tonight. Maybe I'll leave you with these words. Uh, we can practice tonight as an offering to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. I'll leave it there.